Hello, everyone. I wanted to say at the outset that if there was ever an episode where you might want to have a Bible in front of you, this is it. You can definitely just listen, but my recommendation would be to follow along in the Bible if you can. All right, on to the episode. The whole world was lost in the chaos of exile. The nations were still scattered, stumbling around in the dark. Israel was cast out of the lush land of promise, and those few who wandered back in were under the oppressive thumb of Rome. Hope was hard to hold on to. God had left Zion, and his temple was destroyed. When they rebuilt it, the songs of celebration were mixed with weeping. The house was there, but was Yahweh going to return to his mountain? The silence was deafening. The mouths of the prophets had been shut for hundreds of years. And just when it seemed like perhaps God would abandon his plan for all creation, a hush fell over his heavenly host. The stars and planets bowed down in the clear, silent night. And with the gentleness of a snowflake landing just before an avalanche, the long-awaited royal son of David, the greatest great-grandson of Abraham, the everlasting King, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, finally appeared. My name is Kenneth Padgett, and this is the Story of God podcast, presented by Wolfbane Books. From the beginning, God has desired to dwell with his people. We have seen that this is in fact the goal of creation. Remember, God's goal in creating the world was a global garden city where he will dwell in the midst of his people as an everlasting source of life and light. But in the last episode, we saw that everything was once again falling apart. But now, Finally, we are going to hear about the hero of the story, who he is, and what he's doing to restore God's good goal for the world. I thought we might start in the first sentence of the New Testament, a sentence that is exploding with theological wonder. Matthew 1.1 The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The New Testament doesn't ease you in to an elevated theology of the person of Jesus. You don't need to guess how significant he is. Matthew tells us with his first words. But if you don't know the story of the Old Testament, you may just read right over it. Perhaps you're familiar with how John 1 is very similar to Genesis 1. Both start with, in the beginning. Well, Matthew 1 also takes its readers to Genesis. In fact, the word Genesis is in Matthew 1. The first words are biblos genesos. Biblos is a Greek word that means book. It's where we get the term Bible from. Genesos is a Greek word that means beginning. Genesis is just an anglicized pronunciation of genesos. In fact, outside of Matthew 1.1, the phrase biblos genesos is found only in the early chapters of Genesis. The first words of the New Testament should take your mind 
to the beginning of all things. And thus, a cosmic significance should be infused in the imagination of the reader as they move forward. Yes, the word genesos can be translated as genealogy. But I don't want us to miss what readers of the original languages can plainly see. This is a book of beginnings, of new beginnings. This is the book of the Genesis, the beginning, the origin, or the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Every weekday morning, my family sits down at the table and we have what we call Bible time. I know it's not a super clever name, but it works for us. I always begin Bible time with a series of questions to help orient our theological imaginations to better listen to and receive the words of God. These questions are big meta questions like, what is the Bible? Or what is the goal of creation? Or why did God call Abraham? The answer to these questions are something like a lens we look through to read the text well. How can we read the Old Testament? the majority of the Bible well, without remembering why we're tracing the history of these particular people. We can only evaluate their failings and success in light of their purpose. And that purpose is inextricably linked to their father, Abraham. Do you remember why God called Abraham? Abraham was a confused wilderness wanderer, a descendant of those who had been scattered at Babel. Remember that Babel is the Hebrew word for Babel, Babel, and Babylon. God wasn't going to let his story end in tragedy. So he launched his great plan of redemption when he called this wilderness wanderer. The call of Abraham is a direct response to Babel and all the rebellion that had led to it. In Abraham, God is going to reverse the curses of Genesis 3 through 11. He is going to bless the families of the earth by calling them back into his presence. This is why we are following the story of Abraham's family throughout the Old Testament. We are looking for the reversal of Babel, the redemption of the nations through the offspring of Abraham. And while there are glorious moments of faithfulness and blessing, the story of the Old Testament fades to black without that great hope becoming a reality. Not only are the nations still scattered, but Abraham's descendants are themselves exiled in the East. Another meta question that comes up through this story is, who and where is the son promised to David in 2 Samuel 7? We discussed this promised son in episode 6. David desired to make a great house for Yahweh, a temple in the midst of the people. But Yahweh turned this moment around on David and made a promise that he would, in fact, make David's house great. This would be in the form of a mighty king, one of King David's sons, who would rule on an everlasting throne. His kingship would be established forever. And indeed, he would be the one who would build the temple of God. The arrival of this royal figure became the hope of the nation and a theology of the Messiah began to take shape. A king was coming. But David's sons, one after the other, were failures. Yes, Solomon was indeed a partial fulfillment of this promise. He built the temple, and he is noted as the most glorious of the Davidic kings, and his rule represents the height of Israel's stature as a nation. 
but Solomon was a lost and conflicted soul. He fell into idolatry and immorality. Notions of him being the everlasting king came to a halt when the wages of sin were paid out. Eventually, after his death, the nation was ripped apart in civil war, plagued by rebellion and idolatry, and then the two factions were carted off into exile. The Davidic line of kings was lost and never re-established. The people of God once again find themselves in Bavel. Now, throughout this tragic story, there were prophetic utterances that God was going to end the exile, that he was going to establish the Messiah on the throne of David, and that the nations would stream into Jerusalem to know the eternal king of Zion. But 400 years of silence can be as heartbreaking and hope-draining as 400 years in slavery. This brings us back to Matthew 1.1. Who is this book about? Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can you hear the wonder of this sentence? The first sentence of the New Testament is an exile-ending trumpet blast that echoes around the globe and through the halls of history. Matthew can't wait to share the good news of Jesus. Jesus is the royal son of David, that long-awaited Messiah. He's the offspring of Abraham who has come to gather the nations up for blessing. He is the saving king of Israel and indeed the saving king of the whole world. The covenants God made with Abraham and David are two massive pillars that hold together the story of God. And Jesus fulfills both promises. You'll notice that in the story of God with us and in all the story of God books, we always structure our retelling of the Old Testament around these two covenants. This declaration of Jesus's saving kingship is followed by a genealogy. And this genealogy is structured to show that Jesus is the exile-ending king. It moves from Abraham to King David, from King David to the Babylonian exile, and from the Babylonian exile to King Jesus. The exile ends in Jesus. Matthew is showing us how the grand narrative of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus' everlasting exile-ending kingship is embedded in the structure of his genealogy. And to think that some people think that genealogies are boring in the Bible. In fact, the genealogy is three sets of 14 generations. Look at verse 17. Matthew really wants us to know this, but why? Well, in the Hebrew language, there are no characters for numbers. So they use letters to double as numbers. Matthew is pointing out the repetition of 14 for a reason. If you add the numerical value of David's name together, you get 14. Matthew is highlighting, underlining, and putting in bold letters Jesus' saving Davidic kingship. So let's stick with Matthew 1 just a bit longer. We've already seen that Matthew is a literary genius and has wasted no time to herald the good news that Jesus is the long-awaited, everlasting, exile-ending king who will draw the nations into God's presence for blessing. By the way, he did all that by saying that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then giving us a genealogy. 
But as the chapter continues, he goes further into Jesus' identity. In a short narrative you have likely heard before, there's a young gal named Mary and a man named Joseph, and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. A child will be born, and we are told this coming child has two names. The first, and the one that he will go by, is Jesus, which is Yeshua in the Hebrew. This name means Yahweh's salvation. This is followed up by the name Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. Because this story is so familiar to us, we may actually miss the theological bomb that Matthew has just detonated in the story of the Bible. God himself, not Adam, not Noah, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, God himself has entered into the story to bring about his saving purposes. And maybe the craziest part is that he hasn't ditched his rebellious people to do it. The incarnation happens in David's city, where a son of Abraham and a daughter of Eve swaddle the king of the universe. Let me just press a little further into Matthew's account of the saving king so that we can get a better sense of this. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. He's the new Davidic king. But he's also a figure like Moses who will lead a new exodus out of exile. He is taking the mantle of Israel on his shoulders. Remember the purpose of Abraham's offspring. They are the means by which God will reverse the scattering of the nations at Bavel. Jesus is the true and righteous Israelite. But the most mind-blowing reality of all is that he is also Yahweh himself. Now let me show you how Matthew says all of this, because he doesn't say it like I just did. He says it by repeating storied patterns from the Old Testament. It might be handy to have a Bible nearby at this point. Have you ever wondered what Jesus' granddad's name was? Maybe not, but we know it, and it's a little interesting. Matthew 1.16 tells us that it was Jacob. Okay, well, you've heard that name if you're familiar with Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the Jacob of Genesis is the only Jacob in the whole Old Testament. So Jesus' grandfather on the first page of the New Testament is the first Jacob in the Bible since the original. And if you know the story, in Genesis, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But get this, Jacob in Matthew 1 has a son named Joseph. Hmm, interesting. Now we learn in the birth narrative that Joseph is known for his dreams. In fact, Matthew leaves out the angelic visitation to Mary that we read about in Luke and takes us straight to Joseph's dreams. Jacob, Joseph the dreamer, I hope you're picking up big Genesis vibes right now. In Matthew 2, when Jesus is born, there is a tyrant king who wants to kill Israelite boys. To escape this, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Egypt, of all places. When they hear that Herod is dead, the text says, For those who were seeking the life of the child are dead, which is a very close echo of Exodus 4.16. So at the end of Matthew 2, Jesus, like Israel, comes out of Egypt. Again, notice that in Exodus 4.22, Yahweh declares that the nation of Israel is his son a son he will bring out of Egypt. So in Matthew 1, Jacob has a son named Joseph who is a dreamer. In Matthew 2, Joseph and his offspring go down into Egypt 
There's a tyrant king killing the sons of Israel. Jesus comes out of Egypt to fulfill what the prophet says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is so cool. Jesus' birth story is the same as Israel's. But let's look just a little further into the structure of the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 3, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, like Israel going through the sea. In Matthew 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness, like Israel did. And then, Matthew 5, Jesus comes to a mountain, like Israel coming to Sinai. This is absolutely amazing to me. Jesus is Israel. In the opening chapters of Matthew, Jesus' story is Israel's story. But the most amazing part is this. When Jesus gets to the mountain, he isn't Israel awaiting the oracles of Yahweh at the foot of the mountain. He isn't Moses bringing the oracles to and fro. His voice is the voice of Yahweh on the mountaintop. Jesus is Yahweh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you remember the last episode? Israel was drunk on the worship of false gods. Yahweh left the temple. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. After Yahweh leaves the temple in Ezekiel 10, we never read about him coming back to the temple, even after it is rebuilt. But unlike the other accounts, Matthew has structured his to show Jesus' ministry as a steady ascent to Zion. As the book unfolds, in the 21st chapter, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and enters and cleanses the temple. Matthew 21 marks the first time since Ezekiel 10 that Yahweh has entered the temple. The Bible is wildly beautiful, not just in its literary genius, but the story itself is stunning. The Old Testament ends with most of God's people scattered to the east in Babylon, which is Babel. Abraham was the answer to the scattering of Babel in Genesis 12. And now the son of Abraham, the faithful Israelite, has come to redeem his people. He is Yahweh's salvation, come to gather up Israel so that they can fulfill their purpose. The first sentence of Matthew tells us that Jesus is an everlasting king who has come to gather up the scattered families of the earth. A few verses later, we learn that he is God with us. Listen to the last verses of Matthew's gospel. Jesus again meets his disciples at a mountain and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's an everlasting king. So go and make disciples of the nations. He's gathering up the scattered families of the earth baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And look, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew has bookended his account with the wonderful reality that Jesus is the eternal King who is bringing exile to an end, and not just the exile of Israel, but of the whole world. He is gathering up the nations, and he promises to be with us forever. There is so much more 
that could be said about Matthew's gospel account. But I hope you're getting a sense of who Matthew believed Jesus to be and how that fits with the story we've been tracing. As you bask in the goodness of Jesus' saving kingship, I hope you're understanding how the New Testament presumes its readers understand the Old Testament. How could one possibly understand even the first sentence without a knowledge of the story that has unfolded beforehand? How could we see Matthew's robust and glorious account of who Jesus is in the opening chapters if we don't know Israel's story? Yes, the raw details of Jesus can be passed on and received unto salvation. But that's not the way the Bible tells us about Jesus. This is an invitation to dive headfirst into the biblical story, to discover the wonders of the Father, to worship at the feet of His Son, the saving King, and to do it all in the power of the Spirit. There is much more to say about Jesus, and I look forward to the next episode. enjoying the Story of God podcast and think it will be helpful for others, please consider sharing it or maybe even leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. This episode of the Story of God podcast was presented by Wolfbane Books. Please visit us at wolfbanebooks.com or on social media at wolfbanebooks.com.